Over lockdown, those blessed days, uh, I know some people, um, myself included at times, used some of that time to enjoy some films or some binge series on Netflix, Amazon Prime, uh, iPlayer, all of those that are available, Disney and so forth. And um, maybe you rewatch some really epic stories. Maybe you didn't. But, you know, some of those really great films, those ones that uh, stand out, one of the things that, that makes them most gripping sometimes is the, the way that there's the hero, but there's also a truly uh, villainous villain. Do you know what I mean? So I was uh, trying to think of, of some and to, uh, trying to kind of cross the spectrum of perhaps uh, cultural appreciation. Uh, forgive me if I don't have your favorite villain or hero listed, but uh, uh, five of them that I came up with was Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty, kind of a nemesis. What about James Bond and Spectre, but Blofeld? I mean, if, I won't spoil anything uh, on that one, but uh, what about Robin Hood? Sheriff of Nottingham. What about Harry Potter? Voldemort there. Oh, someone's named him. How dare we? Anyway, and uh, great one. What about Aslan? The White Witch. In our story today from the, from the scriptures, I want to read from Matthew chapter 4. And in it, we, we read about Jesus, the hero of course, the great hero. But we recognize that there's a great battle going on and there's a great villain at work. And the Bible talks variously about Satan or the devil. So let's read from chapter 4, verses 1 to 11 of Matthew. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then, the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. 
This series in the morning is uh, under the, the great title, uh, The Heart of Jesus. We're exploring about the word and deed of Jesus. That the, the verse that we were really impacted by at the beginning of the year from Matthew chapter 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That we're exploring what it is about the heart of Jesus, but also seeing that heart in, in the stages of his life as we progress to Easter, to Good Friday and Easter Sunday. So in this part of scripture, as we looked at his baptism last week, the preceding episode in the gospel story. In this episode, Jesus, compelled by the Spirit, sent out by the Holy Spirit, is in the wilderness. And it becomes an epic encounter because it is an epic story. I don't know if you heard in the reading or, or it struck you in the reading, not only of kind of this contrast, and you've probably heard and read this story before. If not, I hope um, I'll bring, some, bring a kind of understanding to it for you. But in it, there's also a lot of resonance, a lot of kind of hints towards this in the, in the backstory of this story in the Old Testament. There are a couple of key moments in the history of God's people at work that have really strong echoes. It's not as this is a new story. Indeed, there is this face-off in the wilderness like three other famous battle scenes in the Bible. Do you remember Adam, Eve in the garden? Genesis chapter 3. There's also, uh, 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 like, the, like the people of God, Israel, the nation in the wilderness after they'd been rescued from Egypt. And there's also this hint of David versus Goliath. And in this story, it's the accuser. In Hebrew, that's the word, uh, the name Satan, the accuser, the devil, the deceiver versus Jesus. So like in the garden with, with Adam, the devil is tempting God's man to doubt God's word. Like with Israel in the wilderness, God's son, God's people, Israel, have passed through the waters and are facing a desert trial. And like David versus Goliath, the anointed king fights alone against a superhuman enemy who has been taunting God's people for 40 days. And in this epic story, Adam failed and Israel failed. But like David, Jesus goes into battle for his people. He steps up as the new Adam, the true man, as the son of God, the true Israel, as David, our spirit-filled champion. And, though, and through apparent weaknesses, he slays the giant. So let's see this story, this battle, this epic encounter unfold in three stages. The first one is the deceiver, the devil, wants Jesus to produce miraculous bread in the wilderness. Do you remember that story? Manna from heaven to sustain them through those 40 years. That's what God did in the wilderness. 
When Israel was in need, when it was hungry, would he do it again? Well, the answer is yes and no. Jesus does produce bread in the wilderness for the people. He feeds the 4,000 and the 5,000. That comes a little bit later in the story. But in this encounter with the deceiver, the accuser, he refuses to feed himself. He recognizes that in this temptation story, Jesus will be broken apart as, if the, bre- as the bread of life to feed the whole world. But he doesn't come to satisfy his own hunger. He comes to fulfill ours. It got me reflecting on temptation. And it reminded me on this particular, this first one, that often so much of the temptation we face is about need, isn't it? About neediness. Jesus is 40 days, 40 nights in the wilderness. Easy question, is he hungry? Yeah, I think there's a pretty much universal recognition. 40 days, 40 nights, he's hungry. In other words, he's vulnerable. A little bit like the next one, there's, there's crowds in the temple, that pinnacle, that, that central point of the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, take yourself up and jump off. You will be protected to this miraculous, wonderful sign that you are the anointed Messiah, the promised one. But Jesus, in both stories, says it's not really... That's the way that he should go. It's about his faith and trust in his father, not this overwhelming display. But, but particularly on this, this kind of make bread, turn these rocks to, st- to these stones to bread, eat, you're hungry. It's just worth reminding ourselves about how we are, about also how Jesus is, that the accuser, the deceiver, knows our vulnerabilities. Do you know that? Paul would write, don't be unaware of his schemes. The accuser, the deceiver of each one of us knows that we are vulnerable and will play on that. And he knows the perfect time to exploit. It wouldn't be day one when Jesus has just arrived and he's, he's had his last supper, so to speak, before the wilderness. Oh no, come on, make some bread, Jesus. It's 40 days and nights later. He is hungry. Temptation, it seems, in my own experience, and in the journey of pastoring people over over the years, we're most vulnerable in the point when we are needy. Easy illustration. I had a lovely cup of coffee this morning at the hatch, and right behind me was these beautiful cakes. I'd only had breakfast in a couple of hours before. Oh, cakes. I'll have one of those. Sarah will attest to this. I turned them down. Not that cakes are bad. But isn't it the case when we are needy, when we are vulnerable, that that's the time the accuser comes and says, what about this? The temptation. Loneliness. Loneliness. Not being appreciated, the lure of, of 
the internet or late night television. Or of poor self-image of feeling, again, lonely or unloved. Someone showing interest in you, whether or not they are married. And, and you understand only too well what I'm driving at, don't you? In the moment of vulnerability, of weakness, when we have a need in ourselves, he will play on that. The accuser, the deceiver. The lure of money and the love of money, particularly in a Western society, I've not got enough. Why should I give generously to the kingdom of God and and to the local church when that's what I want? I really desire that, the temptation to have more than we need. I found this quite helpful by Charles Spurgeon. He said, it's a very serious thing to grow rich. Of all the temptations to which God's children are exposed, it is the worst because it is the one that they do not dread. Believe me, there's no greater trial as no trial. In seeing and understanding the heart of Jesus, I hope we're also able to see ourselves. I just want to make this obvious point. The temptation is normal. It's not a denial of your spirituality or your walk with God to be tempted, is it? Here's Jesus, the very Son of God, in the wilderness being tempted. As fully God and as fully human, the accuser comes to him and tempts him. It is not sin to be tempted. But it is wonderfully helpful to understand in this Jesus, in this epic battle, that he does not give in. He does not succumb. He does not fulfill the desire, the need that he is experiencing. He is with a greater passion. I find this uh, verse from Hebrews really, really powerful and profound. I'm sure you've heard it from chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, he's talking about Jesus, who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest, listen to this, who is unable to feel sympathy with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That as we read this story, we see Jesus is depending on his Father through the power of the Spirit and overcomes the villain. Temptation isn't invincible. If it was, he wouldn't have overcome it. He wouldn't have endured temptation throughout his ministry right up to his crucifixion if it was invincible. It is not. And maybe a word of encouragement. In our journey as children of God, temptation can actually help us to grow can make us stronger because 
in our weakness, in our struggle, it pushes us to depend upon our Heavenly Father because He supplies all our needs. So stage two of this epic story is the deceiver, the accuser, Satan, the devil, turns to Scripture. And like so many of his servants, he's a master at half-truth and suggestion. He knows enough of Scripture to know that the Psalms proclaim the Son of God, Jesus, the Messiah. So he quotes from Psalm 91, kind of says, Jesus, go up to the temple, throw yourself off, you'll be protected. The angels will not let your foot strike. It's about you, isn't it? Jesus. It's a promise for you that you can throw yourself down from the temple and you will be caught by those angels. And of course, Jesus doesn't deny and say, oh, no, that isn't Psalm 91. And he doesn't say it's not about him at all. Of course it is. But Jesus fundamentally, flat out, rejects the proposed public relations stunt that Satan was saying. He doesn't perform a celestial bungee jump. Because he's come to do something else. Jesus has come to hurl himself down and not simply be dashed on the stones of the temple courts. He has come to hurl himself into the great abyss for us. When Jesus is arrested After three years of that wonderful ministry, he explicitly refuses the help of angels and says, as the Son of God, he must die upon the cross. And though there are 12 legions of angels on standby, ready to go, the scriptures must be fulfilled. The Son of Man must go as it is written. He must die for the sins of the world. Didn't God say, not only does the accuser come to us in our vulnerability and our neediness, I think there's something to learn here about how naive we are. I'm sorry if that upsets you and I've insulted you now, but I think it's just really helpful to say one of the biggest issues we face, and Karl Barth, the theologian, would say the biggest sin we have is pride. And caught up in that is just naivety. We think we know, don't we? We think we are wise, but we're really not. We see Jesus understanding the power of the word, of Scripture, of what the Father has said. It is written. But this goes all the way back. This sense of naivety goes all the way back to the first Adam, the first man and woman. Genesis chapter 3. The crafty Satan, the talking snake, says what? Did God really say? Do you hear the resonance? Satan comes to Jesus. It's written, isn't it? Didn't God say this? 
In other words, what he plays at, where the vulnerability comes is saying, do you want to trust your own judgment? Do you think you know best? Do you think you've got a handle on an insight of knowing actually this is the way I should go? Actually, if we answer that kind of from the heart as yes, we're being really naive. Really, really naive. And the Bible would call it foolishness. Not wisdom. Why? Because essentially you're saying, as we saw with the first man and woman, they said, oh yeah, let's doubt God. Let's doubt the one who speaks only truth and all that he says is good because we think we know better. Isn't that topsy-turvy? We think my ways, we forget that God's ways aren't our ways. We forget that God's thoughts are higher and bigger and better than ours. And we think we know how to work all things together for good when actually it's him in his wonderful, wonderful way. And we see the right way in Jesus. He obeys his Father and the Word. Isn't it astonishing how naive we are? When we are faced with a temptation and we think, I've got the solution here. If you've got any wisdom and self-reflection, as you look back on your life, you'll know again and again that way doesn't work. But our naivety says we so often don't learn from our mistakes, from the times that we've given in and we find we've made a right mess of stuff, either on the small scale or the massive scale. How naive we can be. I love this uh, passage from Job. When Job is kind of like challenged and he's kind of saying, where is God? I don't understand and it doesn't seem to work right. And, you know, it, and God out of the whirlwind says this. And I, I just want to read this uh, passage from 38. Because it helps us remember that God is actually well worth trusting. Taking at face value what he says because he knows what he's talking about. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? I mean, this... Answer this question yourself. Where were you when God laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or on who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far may you come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it. The earth takes shape like clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied the light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Anyone? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. The shocking truth is when the Lord reveals to us his ways, and they're not complicated mysteries often, to Adam and Eve, don't eat of this tree. 
did God really say that? Came the thought, the accusation, the deception. Oh, I think I know best. I'll give it a go. The word of God is powerful. We do well to read it, take it deeply in and stand in him on it, through it in life. At Fresh Streams, a conference uh, at the beginning of last month, one of the speakers just helpfully reminded to say, in what Jesus, he quotes back scripture, doesn't he? He, he says, it is written. Doesn't, we don't live on bread alone. But Heli, who was speaking, reminded us some phrases that Jesus says, and it's always worth listening to Jesus, and that the scriptures, in, in ways of positively taking the scripture and using them in our stand, in our walk, when we're faced with situations and temptation, little phrases that she said she's learning, and I'm, I'm trying to do this likewise, I think it's really helpful. One's like, let your light shine. Do not fear. Be reconciled. Get up. It is finished. Little phrases, short, pithy words. I mean, there's big verses we could learn, and they're right and true too. But sometimes, that again and again, that reminder, do not fear. Don't be afraid, said again and again. When our hearts quiver and we are anxious, where is God? What is happening? I don't understand. Do not fear. The word of God. Sometimes he comes in our neediness. The accusation and temptation can come so much in our naivety. I can just urge you, he, God knows best. He really does. If you have any semblance of, of being able to look at other people's lives, not like even your own, that, the truth of that is writ large. And the third encounter, the third stage, is Satan, the accuser, the devil, Offers Jesus the kingdoms of the earth. How ironic is that? But the truth is, Satan, the devil, is, after all, the prince of this world. Jesus himself, in John's gospel, talks about, in chapter 12, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. Verse chapter 14, I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. Chapter 16, and about judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. What the accuser was doing for Jesus was offering him the shortcut. The world follows Satan in, in his thrall, in, in, in trapped in the slavery and bondage and under his authority and rule, blinded, we're told, to the truth. Our world without Jesus is in darkness and implicitly follows his lying, self-serving and death-dealing ways. If we didn't have a gospel, it would be all very, very full of despair. So Satan comes to Jesus and offers him the chance to form a coalition government. Satan says, let's not be enemies don't crush me. You know it will be costly to crush me. I, I will strike your healer reference back to Genesis 3. You will have to die to crush me, Jesus. 
Don't die. Let's find an easier route. Avoid the way of the cross. But no, Jesus will not bow to Satan. He will crush him. Though it will cost Jesus his very life, Jesus will never compromise with evil. His heart, as we see here, is wholly committed to God, even when it costs him everything, even in the wilderness when he's hungry, even when he is presented with ways that, that seem sensible, perhaps. Yet, he understands his father and his father's heart and his way to follow, and it is wholly committed to the father and to coming and fulfilling all that he has been sent to do to the cross. This is how Jesus proves he's the true son of God, by resisting Satan, not giving in, not pursuing the way of self-preservation. Instead, the way of the cross. Temptations can come when we're needy and often when we're being naive. But I think they come when we're actually neglecting When we're, we're thinking, I can straddle both ways, God's and the other. I can do things in half measure. I can find a compromise here. And Jesus says, no, I will worship my Father and dedicate myself fully to him. I'm so thankful Jesus didn't fall or fail. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. The challenge for us in this neglect is, is sometimes, as we've journeyed with Jesus, we may recognize you've already made some sacrifices. You've been on this way and it's cost you. Maybe you're kind of looking and thinking, this way of Jesus is tough. I hope it gets easier. Maybe you've witnessed the benefits of giving and have been blessed by it, but it gets harder too. The more God gives us, the more responsibility we have. And I think there's a challenge, particularly as we grow older in faith and older in life, there's a real tendency to level off, to just ease back a bit with each passing year. Maybe pride begins to reassert itself and say, well, you've sacrificed enough already. Perhaps more than even others, I've been the one that's that serve God and prayed and loved and given. Maybe the implicit accusation or worry of fear tells that now it's a bit time to worry about your future. Friends, even Christian friends or family say, you've done enough now. It's someone else's turn. Not so the Lord. He serves his father. Jesus is not like Adam in the garden. He's not like Israel in the wilderness. He is like David, our anointed champion. He slays the giant through sacrificial love, and his victory is our victory. Hallelujah. That this meal that we're about to share is the victory meal. Some finding closing reassurances. In this epic struggle we see between 
Jesus and Satan. Let me just underline this. Satan is not God. If you think it's like a boxing match, sometimes it's pictured, who's going to win? Jesus. And don't be under any misapprehension that the deceiver, Satan, the accuser, the devil, is the sworn enemy of God and his people. John the Apostle, in his epistle we studied last year, in chapter 3, says, The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. In his book, A Turtle on the Fence Post, it's a good title, I thought, guy called Alan Emery tells of a night he spent on, a tech, on the Texas Plains with a shepherd who is keeping 2,000 sheep. The shepherd prepared a bonfire for cooking supper and providing warmth, and the, the sheepdogs lay down near the fire as the stars filled the sky. Suddenly, Emery said he heard the unmistakable wail of a coyote with an answering call from the other side of the range of the wild creatures, the dangerous ones, the ones who will bring fear and scatter the flock and pick off the weak and the vulnerable. The enemy was coming. The dogs weren't patrolling at the moment and the coyotes seemed to know it. Rising quickly, the shepherd tossed some logs on the fire and in this light, Emery looked out at the sheep and saw thousands of little lights. He writes, I realized that these were reflections of the fire in the eyes of the sheep. In the midst of the danger, the sheep weren't looking out into the darkness, but were keeping their eyes set towards the shepherd. We're to keep our eyes on the shepherd, to be always looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. If the adversary is whispering or wailing or sounding like he's shouting loudly within the earshot of you, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Trust in his word. Let's pray.